Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount lays down principles and rules that govern God's kingdom. We are called to be followers of Jesus and we're called to be citizens in God's kingdom. And the theme of Jesus' sermon has been true righteousness as opposed to the false righteousness as it was seen in the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees. And remember when the Bible uses the term righteousness, it means a right standing with God. What does it mean to have a right relationship with God? In chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so the sermon invites the listener to consider that true righteousness is pictured in our Lord Jesus. He's our king. And then practiced by Christ's followers. We're citizens in his kingdom. Again, righteousness isn't something that's on the outside simply. It isn't just simply looking good or going to good places or or even trying to look good on the outside. Jesus has covered a lot of ground in the sermon. He has spoken about worshiping, that is giving, praying, fasting. So he's talked about worship and he's talked about wealth, storing up your treasure in heaven. He's talked about our walk, don't judge hypocritically, superficially, or unjustly. We can help others get rid of sin, but we have to make sure that we're more severe in our own lives with sin. He talks about being careful in the distribution of holy things, pearls before swine. He's talked about asking and seeking and knocking for strength and for wisdom and for discernment. We are going to need supernatural grace and our Father's ready and willing and able to give us that grace. And so it begins with our preference to do right to others. So Jesus says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Therefore summarizes the whole Sermon on the Mount. And more specifically, verses 1 through 11, which we've already gone through. W.H. Griffith Thomas writes, quote, what is called the golden rule is based on God's willingness to give since we have yielded ourselves to him in prayer with perfect confidence that he will give everything that is good. And because God is giving everything that is good, we in turn are to imitate him in our conduct towards those around us. And again, he writes, quote, this law is definite, simple, universal, beneficent, Under the authority of Christ, its observance would provide a solution of all problems, preserve all rights, enforce all duties, conciliate all differences, silence all discords, prevent 
all wars, unquote. And that's exactly right. This single sentence incorporates an ideal for all human behavior. The golden rule insists on true law and justice and love. The verse is known and quoted by atheists, agnostics, skeptics, humanists, philosophers, past and present, have all rallied around this verse. Even Thomas Jefferson said, quote, Of all the systems of morality, ancient or modern, which have come under my observation, none appear to me so pure than that of Jesus. But like so many verses in the Bible... This is one that is often quoted, but also misunderstood. Why? Because it's quoted out of context. It doesn't simply, it isn't simply quoted in in its singular essence. As a matter of fact, and we, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but next week, when we look at the next verse, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are few that find it. There are a lot of people who want to quote chapter, tw- chapter 7, verse 12, but they want to ignore verse 13 at all costs. Someone has written, quote, well, it's Warren Wiersbe. He's written, quote, this statement is not the sum total of Christian truth. Nor is it God's plan of redemption. We should no more build our theology on the golden rule than we should build our astronomy on twinkle, twinkle, little star, unquote. Now, I think Wiersbe is right, but only partially right. Because this really is good theology, It's good theology because it incorporates right ethics. The statement has to be looked at because it comes from Jesus' lips. And it's, it's a great place to explore what the Bible, the whole Bible, has to say about our behavior and our expectations and how we're to conduct ourselves amongst ourselves. And it appears to me, based on all the things that Jesus has said up until this point, the statement is impossible to do apart from believing the gospel, apart from receiving Christ, apart from walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. The unbeliever might admire the statement, repeat the statement, even seek to live by the statement, but will always fall short. And do you want to know why? Because human beings are consistently selfish and they're consistently self-serving and they find themselves seldom in the rarefied atmosphere of this lofty moral and ethical peak. It's like climbing a mountain and you may think that you can make the journey and you may think that you can breathe the air once you get there. But very rarely do people decide to stay on the mountain peak. When I was a very young man, President Kennedy in 1963 appealed to this golden rule in an anti-segregation speech at the time of the first black enrollment at the University of Alabama. He asked whites to consider what it would be like to be treated as second-class citizens because of skin color. Whites were to imagine themselves being black and then being told 
You can't vote. You can't go to the best public schools. You can't eat at many public restaurants. You can't sit on the front of the bus. And then he asked the question, would whites be content to be treated that way? He wasn't sure that they wouldn't, and yet this is how they treated others. He said, the heart of the question is whether or not we're going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. And the truth, it was as if it went right over their heads. It was as if our so-called Christian commitment was disconnected from the very reality in which we were living. The unbeliever might admire the statement, repeat the statement, even seek to live by the statement. So what is it that would cause us not to do this? By the way, am I suggesting that you disobey Christ's command? Of course I'm not suggesting that. Look at the statement again. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what should I do? How should I behave? In any given circumstance, towards any given person. And remember the Bible says, love your enemies. The Bible says, bless those who curse you. The Bible says, pray for those who despitefully use you. And when people treat you like dirt, you're to treat them like gold. The single sentence incorporates a plan for what not to do. Lie, steal, cheat, abuse, injure. But also what to do, help, care, give. But the single sentence isn't just a sentence about what not to do. It's even not just simply a sentence about what to do. It also invites you to look and to search and to keep searching. To find ways to treat others exactly as you would want them to treat you. And so if God makes the rules, and he does, then God's the best source to determine what we should do. And this is exactly what Jesus is suggesting. If there is no God, then all behavior is ordained by man for man, but that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. There is a God. And he ordains behavior. The real purpose of the golden rule is to release the love of God in our lives so that we can truly love each other, so that we can truly serve one another. And this means loving people and helping people. And this is the big surprise. Even people who want to hurt us. We are foolish or at best naive if we think practicing the golden rule will keep us from harm. But if you want God's best, if you desire God's best, if you really, really want to know about what's God's will, if you desire God's will for yourself and for your family and for your church and for your community and for your country, 
then you're going to have to take a long, hard look into this sentence. We live in a world that rejects God's best and resists God's plans and opposes God's gospel. Your flesh will oppose you and your neighbors will oppose you and Satan will oppose you. Because the moment that you literally take this sentence seriously, you run the risk of being harmed. God hasn't called you to live a life free of injury or even free of harm. And that becomes an important statement because if you think that you were called to live a life free from injury and free from harm, then you've misunderstood exactly what Jesus said, that you live in a broken world, you live in a fallen world, and you're going to be persecuted. God has called you to be salt and light and salt stings when you pour it into an open wound. And the moment that you decide that you're going to do this, you are going to be that salt in this culture. And salt cleanses, but family and friends and society and government and educational systems would just as soon flush you from their wounds. The world has their own basic rule. It's not the golden rule. It's not even the silver rule. It's a base rule. It is the opposite of Christ's golden rule. Do to others before they do it to you. Or worse. He who has the gold rules. But the Lord Jesus invites us to treat others. Underline this word, reasonable. The Lord Jesus invites us to treat others reasonable as we would have them treat ourselves reasonable. Surprisingly, Jesus doesn't add if they deserve it, if, they're, if they extend to you the same courtesy, if they extend the same respect. Saying this and doing this is the very, very wide divide. This is a paraphrase, by the way, of the second commandment, which is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a reiteration of that very statement. The way you treat someone is a reflection of what you really believe about them. I think you know that's intuitively true. The way you treat someone is a reflection of what you really believe about them. And so one of the most impossible statements to believe is, I didn't really mean that. I didn't really mean what I said. I didn't really mean what I did. No wonder Paul writes to the Galatians and says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Does the commandment suggest that we should expect similar treatment? I think that that's the world's interpretation. That's not the Bible's interpretation. You would think, again, in a perfect world, the way you treat someone, there's going to be a sense of reciprocity. But that's not what the Bible seems to indicate. Some suggest that others in history came up with the golden rule way before Jesus ever spoke these words. 
It is true that history records in the famous sayings and philosophies of men similar statements. Hillel, the rabbi, was approached by a person and asked if he could summarize the law and the prophets while standing on one leg. By the way, standing on one leg was an idiomatic expression in the ancient world which meant, can you keep your answer brief? Can you just get to the point? The rabbi responded, what is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. The book of Tobit in the Apocrypha teaches, quote, what thou thyself hatest, to no man do, unquote. Confucius taught, quote, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others, unquote. The Greek Philosopher Epictetus said, quote, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not inflict on others, unquote. In all the cases of history, it's always paraphrased in the negative, don't. This is what makes Jesus' statement so radically different from what was said before. Because he is suggesting, as noble as these sentiments are, as important as they are, and even as helpful as they are, they fall short. Because Jesus is asking for so much more. What the ancients taught were expressions of Self-interest, not love in a biblical statement. It was self-interest in, this, in, in, in the sense of you should do this because it's in your best interest to do this. And in a certain sense, that's right. We are nice to people, so they'll be nice to us. We don't hit people, so they won't hit us. It's in our self-interest to keep from hitting and hurting so that we won't be hit and so that we won't be hurt. It's useful, but it's not exactly what Jesus had in mind. John MacArthur writes, quote, Man's basic problem is a preoccupation with self. Unquote. He's right. Remember Jesus earlier hinted in the very earlier sentence, if you then being evil in verse 11 know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's already hinted that we have a problem, that we are evil. And one of the worst things that we could possibly do is fool ourselves into thinking what is good is evil and what is evil is good. The Bible teaches there's none who do, do good. Not even one in Romans chapter 3 verse 12. The Bible paints a bleak picture of the human soul apart from Christ and apart from God and apart from his grace and apart from his mercy the Bible says we like sheep have all turned away. Each and every one of us has gone our own separate way. It says in Isaiah 53, 6. Narcissism is a condition named after a Greek mythological figure named Narcissus. I don't know if you remember that story, but he spent his life gazing into the big screen. No, it wasn't a big screen. It was a big pool that... Movies weren't invented back in those days. He would basically 
come to a pool of water. And he would look into the pool of water. And just like a bad Saturday Night Live skit, he would go, you know, Narcissus, when I look into this pool of water and I see the reflection of myself peering back from the water, I say, you look marvelous. <laughs> he was fascinated. He was preoccupied. He perceived the sublime perfection of his features. Sin at the source is exactly that. It's a preoccupation with self. But it's way more than that. It isn't just simply a preoccupation with self. It is also a commitment to live your life apart from God. We define our lives in terms of what I want, what I need, and what I desire. And it doesn't matter who gets hurt just so long as I'm satisfied. And so the unregenerate man cannot come up with selfless love sacrificial love over a sustained period of time? Do the unregenerate have moments of selflessness? I think that the answer is yes. Do the unregenerate have moments of sacrifice? I think that the answer is yes. But the truth, you can't drink from an empty cup and you can't live from an empty heart. Tweet that. The emperor Marcus Aurelius said, we ought to do good to others as simply and as naturally as a horse runs or a bee makes honey or a vine bears grapes during its season after season after season without thinking of the grapes that it is born, unquote. Sounds very much like Jesus. That good trees will produce good fruit. If human beings make the rules, then they feel free to break the rules. William Provine wrote, quote, No inherent moral or ethical law exists, nor are there absolute guiding principles for human society. The universe cares nothing for us, and we have no ultimate meaning in life, unquote. This is the height of pessimism and darkness and disconnect but there are people who actually believe this there are people who believe that the world in which you live is a world that isn't guided and isn't guarded and isn't governed by the sovereignty of God his worldview expresses his belief if there is no God there's no inherent moral or ethical laws if no one cares then there's no meaning and when you come to the conclusion that that's true, it's only one more short step to treating other people badly. And so what is it that you really do believe? What do you believe in your heart? What do you believe about the human condition? Because what you believe about the human condition, again, will be reflected in what you actually do. If in our fallen human nature, we often slide to the lowest common denominator of criticism. John Corson writes, quote, I read that when Stan Musial, 
The St. Louis Cardinal Hall of Fame player came up to the big leagues. He hit a single his first time at bat. His second trip to the plate, he hit a triple. The third time to the plate, he hit a home run. Single, triple, home run. The press went wild. A superstar had emerged. And as they interviewed Bobo Newsom, the pitcher who had given up the hits, he said, ah, Muschel's not perfect. He can't hit doubles. We find a flaw. We find a way to break people. And Jesus turns it around and gives the truth. Again, John MacArthur writes, quote, Selfless love does not serve in order to prevent harm or ensure its own welfare. It serves for the sake of the one being served. And it serves in the way it likes being served. Whether it ever receives such service or not, that level of love is the divine love and can be achieved only by divine help, unquote. But it will become the very, very very real way in which Jesus will live his life for you. And so our pursuit to fulfill the law of God. Look what it says in verse 12. For this is the law and the prophets at the end of the passage. This is the law and the prophets, Jesus says. What is he saying? What does he mean by that? This is the law. This is the prophets. This is Jesus' way of saying everything in the Bible, everything in the Bible, everything that has been written in the past, everything that has been written in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, everything that's been written in Joshua and Judges. As you make your way and you go through the history of the past, Jesus is basically saying that the law and the prophets foreshadowed the revelation of what God wanted and what God expected and what God required. No wonder it sums up the statement, whatever you want men to do to you, do to them. There is the spirit and this is the spirit and intent of all that God has given in his law. This is everything that's been revealed by the prophets. But twisted and perverted people Twisted and sick people might so totally misunderstand what is being said. Imagine if a person said to you, I don't mind if you kill my family. I don't mind if you take my wife, steal my property. Jesus understood that even among the unbeliever and the unregenerate, most people value their family, they value their children, they value their grandchildren, they value their life, they value their property. But when are you less likely to value yourself or your children or your property or the things that are important? When are you less likely to do that? It's when you grow up in a broken world and all of a sudden broken things start happening to broken people. When I was a preteen, I joined with some friends and I went on a rampage of destruction. We got some baseball bats. 
We would go into new properties and we would break mirrors and fixtures and doors and walls. It was wicked, evil, and it was a builder's nightmare. Can you imagine a bunch of juvenile delinquents going into a building project with baseball bats and then just simply tearing up everything that people had worked so hard to make? I can remember destroying people's property and not caring, feeling no guilt, feeling no remorse. It never occurred to me that my actions cost someone something. It cost them something. Time, labor, money, heartache, pain. It never occurred to me that I was destroying someone's home. I had no real concept or appreciation of what it meant to own something valuable or care about something or invest in something. And looking back, it's hard to imagine how I could have been so callous, so cruel, so uncaring, so wicked. But when Jesus came into my life, a radical change took place. There was something powerful and different There was something important. The horror of sin began to dawn on me and its destructive power became very real to me. And I understood, not completely, but I understood that the power and the grip of sin comes into people's life to destroy and to hurt. And I began to understand exactly what the Bible meant when it said that the devil comes to harm, to kill to destroy. For the first time in my life, it made more sense not to steal, not to destroy, but to ask a different question. Not just simply, how can I be different? But how can I honor God? How how can I honor God? You know, being arrested by the police didn't change me. Feeling some sense of remorse or regret didn't change me. Understanding the fundamentals of God's law didn't change me. Jesus had to change me. Jesus had to give me a new heart and a new life and a different outlook before I could even attempt to treat people differently. Thank God Jesus is in the business of changing people's lives. The law and the prophets contained the plan of God. The law and the prophet contained the will of God for mankind. And a careful reading of the Old Testament reveals that human beings disobeyed God. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sinned against God, were alienated from their creator. And the whole Old Testament is devoted to God's plan of redemption, the arrival of a Savior who's going to release us from sin's curse and break the bondage so that we can have a right relationship with God. But remember that that possibility also extends the possibility that you can have a right relationship with each other. In law, there are statutes and ordinances that are made in order to regulate people's behavior. All law 
compels behavior. There's a reason why there's a law that says when it's red, stop. But it means that when it's red for you, it's green for somebody else. But can you imagine a world... Could you even imagine a government? Can you imagine a constitution where the golden rule is the single statute that governs all human behavior? How much of our law would disappear from the books? If it were possible to make this law, law, most law would disappear. Has anyone ever asked you the question, what is the Bible all about? What's the Bible a book about? And the right answer, of course, is it's a book about Jesus. It's a book that predicts his coming and then declares his coming and then reveals what he said and what he did. But it's also a book about how to treat people right. It isn't just simply a book about God's generosity. If that were all that it were about, it would be wonderful and important. But it's also a book about how we can be generous with each other. It's about divine generosity. And so no wonder it's our plan to know and then to do God's will. Sir Thomas Brown said, we are beholden to every man who doth not kill us, unquote. Why say that? To put it in the modern vernacular, thanks for not killing me. The basics of civilization require that we don't kill each other. We make a conscientious effort to refrain from doing evil. But the Bible requires more. The Bible doesn't just simply say, hey, you know what? You should wake up tomorrow and tell, tell your wife, thanks for not sewing me in the bedsheets and then beating me to death with a baseball bat. There has to be more to life. The Bible says that we don't just simply refrain from doing evil. We need to do good. We can adopt the physician's golden rule, do no harm. But we need to do more than just do no harm. We need to do good. But for the Christian, the Christ follower, again, we are urged to do good. The Bible says, he's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. Again, there's a big difference between saying, I'm going to refrain from hurting you versus I'm going to seek you out so that I can do something good for you. In this command, Jesus gives orders to both individuals and churches. And I'm going to suggest to you societies to go out of their way to find people. To go out of our way to love people. To go out of our way to serve people. And this kind of love can only come by the power of God through his Holy Spirit. As you decide to live a different life. Let me put it a different way. 
What if the law required you in order to get a driver's license that you have to take a test? And you go, it does require you to take a test. Well, what if the law also said you have to make a promise not to crash into people? Well, it does say that. It's implied that when you're driving your car, it's probably a bad idea to run over people. But what if the law also said that when somebody desperately needed a ride, you had to give them a ride? And you go, thank God the law doesn't ask me to do that. And you're right. The law doesn't ask you to do that. But this is what Jesus asks you to do. The Human Manifesto, part two, says in part, quote, ethics stem from human need and interest. To deny this distorts the whole basis of human life. Human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. Happiness and the creative realization of human needs and desires individually and in shared enjoyment are continuous themes of humanism. We strive for the good here and now. Now think about this. The reason why I'm quoting this particular comment from Understanding the Times, even the humanist, the unbeliever, the make-believer, the person who doesn't identify with Jesus in, by any stretch of the imagination will suggest to you that human beings impart meaning to one another and should act in such a way that we refrain from harming one another. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because humanists believe that ethics, the ought of behavior, stems from human need and human interest. But you're not a humanist if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you believe in Jesus. You don't believe that your choices stem because you're willing to do what's good for people in the here and now. You believe in what God wants you to do, that your actions are governed by what glorifies God. And that's the difference. The humanists present a proposition that human life has meaning because we create our meaning. But the human, humanist has to borrow from the Christian worldview, but still wants to hold on to the right and root of behavior for the purposes of personal interest. Here's the problem with their position, and this is why it breaks down. It seems to work when the unbeliever or the humanist says, we should we be willing to do what's right towards other in order to keep each other safe. And you can say amen to that. But what happens when a Mao Zedong, what happens when an Adolf Hitler, what happens when a Pol Pot, what happens to a person who basically decides to change the rules? That harm or goodness is based on what is harmful to the state or harmful to me. Then what they do is they divorce themselves from what makes it possible for a Christian to act like a Christian and be a Christian. And that is because our command comes from Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. By the way, will Jesus ever change? The answer is no. If Jesus loved you in the past, will he love you in the future? If Jesus is willing to sacrifice for you in the past, is he willing to sacrifice for you in the future? Who makes the rules? 
Does government make the rules? Do you yourself make the rules? The prophet Amos in chapter 5 verse 15 said, Hate what is evil and love what is good. Establish judgment in the gate. If God makes the rules in your life, then he should be the ruler. If you're the ruler in your life, then your rules will be based on passion or desire or will. By the way, your will is never far from your character. You should tweet that as well. Your will is never far from your character. What's beautiful about that statement is that God's will is never far from God's character. I'm going to repeat that. God's will is never far from God's character. And what is God's character? He's perfectly loving. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly kind. You know, prior to his conversion, C.S. Lewis claimed a kind of determined atheism. He admits that what mattered most to him was his deep-seated hatred of authority, his monstrous individualism, and his lawlessness. Lewis wrote, quote, No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. Yet Christianity placed at the center what seemed to me a transcendent or a transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with notice no admittance. And that was what I wanted, some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only, unquote. This was C.S. Lewis's way of saying, the thing that bothered me most about God and about Christianity and the Bible is it basically said that it would interfere with my life. And a Christianity that doesn't interfere with your life isn't really Christianity. Jesus doesn't leave room for us to say, leave me alone, get out of my face, mind your own business. If Jesus makes the rules, here's my question to you. Does Jesus have the power to enforce the rules? think that that's right so if Jesus says treat others as you would have them treat you what does that passage suggest I'm going to suggest to you it means that we can demand true justice we can insist that all people be be treated justly that makes sense to you doesn't it we can include real love We can insist on expressions of goodness and decency. And we can embrace the whole law of Christ. 
And this is what the Bible says. This is the law of Christ. That you should love each other. And so what's required of me? What is it that I have to know, that I need to know? I need to know what Jesus taught. That makes sense. I need to know not simply what Jesus taught, but to believe what he taught. That makes sense. To not only know what he said, but to believe what he said. But if you know what he said and you believe what he said, but you're not willing to do what he said, that creates a whole another problem, doesn't it? We can no longer simply treat people the way they treat us. We can't just simply treat good for good or evil for evil or abuse for abuse. We can't even treat people simply the way we hope to be treated or expect to be treated. We have to go one step further. And that's to treat them the way that Jesus requires. We must treat people the way they want to be treated. But we also have to treat them in such a way that it reflects the truth. Perhaps one simple way to practice the passage is to simply ask a different question. Whenever you're faced with a difficulty, whenever you're faced with a choice, you ask yourself the question, how do I want to be treated in this situation? No wonder Benjamin Franklin said, well done is better than well said. Someone wrote, People are unreasonable, illogical, self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people may accuse you of selfish motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you may win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and transparency make you vulnerable. Be honest and transparent anyway. What you spend years building could be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People who really want to help may attack you if you help them. Help them anyway. Give the world the best you have and you may get hurt. Give the world the best anyway. And now we understand a little bit better. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also for them. This is the law. This is the prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we know what the text says. Most of us even believe that it's true. But in moments of bitter realization, we realize that um, things that we think and the words that we say and the actions that we exercise don't always reflect as if this is true. And so again, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't fall into the trap of the atheist, the humanist, the unbeliever, and the make-believer of 
even for a moment pretending that we can do this all the time with no help. Lord, we know that we need a Savior. Lord, we know that it's going to require the presence of a real person inside of our heart, motivating us, changing us, changing the way we think, changing the way we speak, changing our passions, and finally informing our will so that we can say with all honesty, I want to do what Jesus wants me to do in this situation. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're at work in our hearts, that you're at work in our lives. That, Lord, even if we've failed in the past, that there's forgiveness and hope. There's a provision of grace so that, Lord, we can do what's required. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.